This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment is a, it's really, it's going to be a good one too, because I think this is a question. Anytime you're in financial problems or in in financial debt of some sort, start thinking about the stuff that you have Mm -hmm. and bankruptcy. We've talked about this before. It's a scary word. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it when you hear it. Um, And I guess the number one thing is if you, if the best advice is to file for bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. do you get to keep your home? Yeah, that's a huge question. Anybody that's a homeowner that's considering bankruptcy, there's a ton of myths that are out there, a ton of misconceptions. You know, Some people think it's impossible. If you file for bankruptcy, you're giving that home over, give the keys back to the bank, and that's that automatic foreclosure. Um, they think in every case you can't keep your home. Others think, well, if you go into bankruptcy, you get rid of all the debt, you get to keep the house. Now, most people don't think that, but I have had a couple people say, well, bankruptcy deals with everything, including the mortgage. But the facts are, Elaine, the vast majority of people that go through bankruptcy, they are able to keep their house. And okay. I'll explain to you why that is. We're going to go through a few concepts today, talking about home equity and talking about exemptions and, and different things like that. So if someone's listening to this and they're a homeowner, they're overextended on their non-mortgage debt, um, but they do want to try to make sure they can keep the place they're living in, I think they'll find some good insight today. Okay. So home equity. Um, is that the same as the value of my home? Similar, it'd be the same as the value of your home if you had no no mortgage against it. If there were no debts on title, if you just owned your home free and clear, well, then your equity is exactly the value of your home. Okay. But almost nobody that I've seen, definitely, definitely in the lower mainland, owns their home free and clear. So the way to consider home equity is that it's calculated as the value of your home less the amount of debt that's outstanding that would need to be paid if you were to sell. So, for example, and using reasonable numbers in the lower mainland, um, if your house was worth a million dollars and you had a mortgage of $950,000, you'd have approximately $50,000 of notional home equity. And I say notional because it's not the case you sell and suddenly you're going to have that $50,000 in hand. There are transaction costs, right? There's going to be realtor costs that might eat up that 50k right there. Right. Um, there's realtor costs. There's legal costs. There's GST. There might be some appraisals. You know, different things like that. Um, so just this idea of it's the value of your home minus the amount owed on it, that's notional home equity, but your actual home equity can be lower than that. Okay, so it's not, it's not, it's not very rosy. It's not a good picture at that point. Well, well, it all depends. So it can be either good or bad, but I'm just saying, um, you know, if you've got a house worth a million dollars and there's a big mortgage against it, you might not have a whole lot of equity. Right. If I'm needing to sell it because I'm in trouble mm-hmm. in some way. You know, from that point of view, yeah, it might not be meant. great. Yeah, you yeah. might not end up with everything that you think you would end up with because, again, different costs. There might be even a cost to break your mortgage. In some cases, that could be $20,000 or more. So there are a bunch of things that could eat, eat into, into a, your home equity. Even though there's a big number there to start, it could be lower once you take all the deductions. Okay. So your next point, every province in this country gives people a set of exemption allowances. Mm-hmm. Um, what it means is that there's laws to protect 
what, certain assets? or yeah. so if someone files for bankruptcy, um, the government has said, you know, we don't want it to be that bankruptcy takes everything away from you, including your will to live, so to speak. So if someone files for bankruptcy, the government says there are certain assets that you never lose. So, you know, some basic ones are your household furniture. I've, as a trustee, I've never been to someone's house to take their furniture away. Never going to do that. Uh, your clothing and your medical aids, those are unlimited exemption. One vehicle you're allowed, your tools of the trade you're allowed. For home equity, you're allowed an actual value of equity. So after all deductions and all transaction costs of up to $12,000 in the province of BC. Okay. So if someone's sitting here and they've got, you know, the house at a million and the mortgage at nine fifty, by the time we take all those transaction costs away, they might have less than the twelve thousand dollars of equity, which means if that person files for bankruptcy, nothing happens to their house if they've got less than that exempt amount of equity. They just keep making the payments. And one other piece on your list is RRSPs. Mm-hmm. And you didn't you didn't include that. Was that a reason was there a reason for that or just slipped your mind? No, in did, the list? that's usually one of the top ones. So thank you for dragging me back to that one, Elaine, because yeah, RRSPs, nobody knows this, but they're a hundred percent exempt. If you have to file for bankruptcy, theoretically, you know, you're turning over all of your assets. But if you think about it, if you had a company pension plan, you've never had to turn over your company pension plan. That's untouchable. The government changed the rules in about 2010 to make RRSPs the same status as a pension plan. They essentially can't be collapsed if you file for bankruptcy. Now, there's a small caveat that if you've thrown a bunch of money in the last 12 months, that can be dragged out. But everything else, anything that's been there for more than a year is 100% safe if you had to file for bankruptcy. So that's a huge exemption for people to be aware of. Don't cash in your RRSPs to pay debt. Um, You can keep them after a bankruptcy. See, and that's so important what you just said. Do not, and and that would be the first thing that I would do if I didn't know better, I would think, oh, I need to use all of my savings to pay off this debt Mm -hmm. before I take other action. Uh, But you don't have to. Absolutely. Because quite often, and sometimes the bank tells you to do this or the collection agent tells you to do this, say you have to do this by law. You've got to give us your RRSPs. And the facts are, no, there's nothing that you have to do. If eyes wide open, you want to cash in your RRSPs and, you know, give your creditors an asset they're not entitled to. Okay, go for it. But make sure your eyes are wide open that you know that you don't have to do that. You don't have to do it. It's not law. You shouldn't be expected to. Mm-hmm. Very good. I'm, I'm glad we covered that because I think that's such an important piece for pe- for people to uh, to know if they don't know that already. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you talk about here the idea behind exemptions is that we're entitled to retain a certain base level of assets in all circumstances. And I love this mm-hmm. because it's it's sort of... I mean, love might be a bit of a strong word, but no, I, I like <laughs> I like the yeah. fact that that there's some leeway for some thoughtfulness for mm-hmm. people. Yeah, to me, it comes down to dignity. Right? Yeah. It's the dignity of the individual. Just because you got into debt, you're no less of a person. And I would feel like less of a person if suddenly someone's carting out my furniture and taking my medical aids and taking my tools to trade. I can't earn income. So there's a whole idea that bankruptcy deals with the debt, but it's supposed to help you get your dignity back, help you get your self-respect, your self-worth back. And the government agrees with that by saying, yeah, everybody needs a base level of assets that can never be taken from them. And that's the idea behind exemptions. Do you want to talk about uh, the home equity over the exemption allowance and and how does that fit into this discussion? Yeah. So if someone's listening and they say, okay, well, that's well and good, Blair. If I got less than $12,000 of equity, I go into bankruptcy and I get to keep the house. Okay, that's great. But gee, I've got probably $20,000 or $30,000 or more equity than that. What happens if I go into bankruptcy? Do I have to sell the house? 
And the answer is no, you don't have to. Now, you may want to if you're going through a bankruptcy and you realize that, you know what, I'm just not able to afford this house. I'm overextended on the mortgage and now is the time that I want to take the break from the house. You could choose to sell. But in the event that it's a case, you know, you really love the house, you want to stay there, what most people do is they work on an agreement with the trustee whereby we agree on the amount of equity and let's say, you know, it's $15,000, for example. Mm -hmm. The first $12,000 is exempt. The person doesn't have to pay anything for it. Whatever the extra value of equity would be, in this case, $3,000, they just make an arrangement to pay that to the trustee over monthly payments. So maybe over the case of a year, um, you know, they'd pay $300, $200 or something each month, and then they would essentially buy back the equity that's above the exempt amount. So figure out the equity. The first 12 is the individual's free and clear. And if the property were to get sold, they actually get that paid to them, Elaine. So that's kind of an important thing that if someone outside of a bankruptcy, they've got some equity, but they've also got a massive amount of debt. If they were to sell their property and, you know, get the money from their proceeds, they'd have to turn it all over to the creditors and pay the debts. That's legally what they should do. If they're in a bankruptcy, if the house gets sold, they get the first $12,000 free and clear. It doesn't have to go and sell the debts. Okay. doesn't have to go and pay the debts. So it can be the, the difference between sell your house outside of bankruptcy, end up with nothing and still have debt to pay and have to go bankrupt, or sell your house within bankruptcy, get your $12,000 and you're at the same output. You still had to do the bankruptcy, but at least your $12,000 better off. And here's the thing. If you're sitting there listening to this and listening to Blair describe this and it doesn't make any sense to you and you're in this situation, that's when you go see him mm-hmm. and say, okay, can you explain this to me again? Because it is a complicated, yeah. I mean, if you're not used to dealing with money matters and investments and debt and, and all the stuff that you are, you and Sands and Associates are experts at, this is your livelihood, this is what you're education is based on, then that's when you go see you. Exactly. That's when I go see you. Yeah, every situation is different. And my God, for everyone with their house, this is the largest financial transaction, the biggest investment decision. And so much of us as Canadians, you know, we're proud of being homeowners when we can afford it. Um, So definitely before you take any drastic steps, you come and see a trustee. It's free, unbiased advice to help you understand your options. And it's an emotional thing too. Oh, yeah. You guys totally get that. Yeah. I mean, just as a person on the planet, we're so lucky to be able to have homes and purchase homes and live in homes mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, there's a lot connected to that. Mm-hmm. So um, how does how impacted is my mortgage uh, by declaring bankruptcy or or is it? Yeah, and the answer is it's typically not. And this is surprising to a lot of folks, but if we figured out that there's no equity or there's a minimal amount of equity that either you're going to buy back or it's below the exempt amount, what most people end up doing is they just keep making their mortgage payments. So if you go into bankruptcy in that house we talked about, there's nothing the trustee needs to deal with because there's not a whole lot of equity. The lenders are quite happy. You just keep making your mortgage payments. A bankruptcy can come and go. And typically there's no impact on the house. You filing for bankruptcy doesn't mean that you'll get forced out of the house. It doesn't trigger an automatic foreclosure. The things that do trigger that are if you're more than three months in arrears on your mortgage. Okay. So sometimes I meet with young couples or young families and they're struggling to pay the mortgage each month or two months delinquent because they're keeping all the credit cards up to date. Right. And you can imagine what I can tell them, we'll do a proposal or we'll file a bankruptcy so we can lower that credit card payments and then suddenly they can afford the mortgage. They're able to stay in their house in that scenario. And that's and that's the work of a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair is uh, mm. because you have the uh, legal ability and uh, knowledge and expertise to be able to negotiate those kinds of things. Yeah, we're the only people that could do something like that. The only people that could help you preserve your equity and reduce the debt and not have to basically compromise 
penalize one for the other. Yeah, so don't believe anybody else <laughs> unless they're a licensed insolvency trustee because they just don't have the the legal expertise or the uh, or the the lawfulness to be able to do it. Yeah, the the trustee role in Canada is unique. It doesn't exist in any other countries that I know of. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's all bankruptcy attorneys, bankruptcy lawyers. You know, in Canada, a licensed insolvency trustee, your first call, your best call to get some good unbiased advice. Now, I know that there's a bunch of other pieces that we, you wanted to cover on this, and we're we're running out of time. Is there something that you think is really important that we need to know before we wrap up the segment? You know, I think I think maybe two points just relatively quickly. So one, Elaine, is that a consumer proposal is another great option. So it doesn't always have to be a bankruptcy. And if you're in a consumer proposal, you typically just continue to make your payments on your mortgage. And even renewing your mortgage, from my experience, has not been a challenge. So even if someone's in a consumer proposal and their mortgage comes up for renewal, as long as they're up to date on their payments, they typically are able to renew their mortgage. And the last point, just in the few seconds we have left, is for folks who are aspiring to home ownership and feel like a bankruptcy might take them off that path for the rest of their lives? Absolutely not. It's as soon as two to three years after a bankruptcy is finished, someone could qualify for a mortgage if they've rebuilt their credit and saved the down payment. So don't assume that a bankruptcy makes means you can never own a house again. Sometimes it makes you much better off. Okay. If you want more information, go to the website sands-trustee.com. There's loads of information, good questions and answers that people have had that uh, are looked after there. Or if you want to make an appointment, get a free consultation, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can also phone that number uh, to find a Sands and Associates office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So uh, I love the title of this segment. It's Relaxing on a Budget. And the mm. first thought I had, is that possible? <laughs> it <laughs> definitely is. It can is be more relaxing really, knowing you're not overspending, right? <laughs> really? Wow, good. I'm glad that you're here to talk about this because my first thought was, it's not possible to be relaxed on a budget. <laughs> but I know that you've talked to lots of people who believe it it is. Yeah. And you've got some great ideas. Yeah. So what I've been doing over the summer is just checking in with all of my financial counselors, doing some professional development with each of them. And then I've also been asking them, what are some tips that I can bring on to the radio show? Different themes, different things that you've heard people say, hey, this really works for me or guidance you give to your clients. And I thought today, let's talk about, yeah, how do you take it easy? How do you relax? How do you take some time off without really breaking the bank? Okay. What's your number one? Well, they're not necessarily in order of importance. Fair but, enough. But for me, being on the more bookish side, I'll say this is probably my number one, is reading a book. Whether it's an old favorite or a new one, library is an incredible resource. If you're looking for some good financial recommendations, um, I can't recommend The Wealthy Barber or The Wealthy Barber Returns more highly enough. Um, they're exceptionally good reads. Um, Gail Vaz Oxlade has a number of very good financial books. Debt-Free Forever is a very good one. Um, obviously, if you don't want to read just about your finances, just read something. You know, read a good story. <laughs> historical fiction, whatever whatever appeals to you. There's so much that's out there. And, you know, rather than buying the book online, I know it's great, Amazon, one day shipping, it gets to your door. Library card is free. As long yeah. as you return the items on time, it's free. They can order in books for you. And depending on where you live, uh, even downloading a book on your e-reader, mm -hmm. right? Which I think is 
pretty awesome that you can do that. Yeah, yeah. I think people have no idea you can do that at, at the library, and I don't think it works for all. I think Amazon maybe not, but for Kubo or Kobo, I believe yeah. for sure, yeah, you can add books um, on the e-reader from the library, which is great. How to bring that into the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're cutting down on detritus in your house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Needless to say, we have a lot of that. <laughs> books, etc. Um, I love this, that you included exercise. Yeah, just light exercise. So again, all of this is stuff, if you make it too big, you're just not going to do it. Uh, but, you know, go for a walk around the neighborhood or, you know, think about a, a low impact sport is what one of my counselors was saying here. Apparently pickleball is all the rage these days. And it I don't is. know if you've seen it around the lane, but uh, yeah, it is. yeah, it's like tennis, but on a smaller scale, a little yeah. bit less running, less side to side. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's a larger, larger pat or a larger head of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the racket and a bigger ball. Yeah. I've never played. I can honestly say, but I understand it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I've seen that at community centers just take off yes. like wildfire these days. But yeah, even if it's just out enjoying a walk around, you know, beautiful lower mainland or wherever you are in BC, there's a lot of natural beauty that can be enjoyed and just clear your head. You know, don't take the phone, just, you know, let your mind wander. A little unoccupied mind time can be a good thing. Yeah, very good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also work on a, a health related show. So this one comes up, uh, the next mm-hmm. one that you've listed here comes up a lot. Ah, the idea of keeping a journal. No, getting enough sleep. <laughs> that's what I saw, was getting enough sleep. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. That's, that's good too. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely getting enough sleep um, is, is important. So, Um, you've got to allow yourself some time to wind down. So a lot of clients were telling us, you know, my mind's going a mile a minute, you know, thinking about eight hours. Well, you've got to basically plan for, you know, wind it down an hour before, whether it's some light reading or light exercise, nothing too strenuous, just getting yourself into that mode. And, you know, everyone's a little bit different. I worked for some people that could, you know, sleep five hours a night and be functional. I've worked with other folks that need 10 hours a day to be functional. So, you know, eight hours is typically what they recommend, but obviously you know your body better than anybody else. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the journaling idea, which I sort of usurped a little bit, (laughs) is a terrific idea, especially at night. It's a great way of getting rid of all the stuff that's Mm -hmm. buzzing around your brain. It's a really great way to get it out on paper. And it's seems to psychologically just kind of takes the the noise down a few yeah. notches. Oh, and it, it's fascinating too, you know, to read it back in the future, you know, where you yeah. were at, at that period of time. But also to your point, Elaine, once you put something down on paper, suddenly it's not racing around your no. mind as much anymore. You can stare at it. You don't have to keep it in your conscious mind yeah, all the time. Yeah, or know that it's written down somewhere mm-hmm. so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, what else? Uh, decluttering. So mm. we alluded to this a little bit earlier. So sometimes the things you own can have their own impact upon you yeah. um, uh, to the point, you know, there's a reason why people find golf so relaxing. Golf is very much um, unobstructed, very open, not a lot of clutter all around. Um, if your house is not looking much like a golf course and looking a lot of clutter, a lot of things that are consuming, you may not even realize it, but the things that are surrounding you may be causing you some stress. Especially if you have too many things mm-hmm. surrounding you. I yeah. would think. So sometimes, you again, you want to start small. So pick a small space or an area, you know, start decluttering, start reorganizing. Um, you can just imagine the sense of accomplishment you can feel once you've decluttered, gotten a bunch of stuff, um, gotten rid of it, wasn't adding any value anymore. I like this uh, sort of remembering things as well. Mm-hmm. The past, photographs, all that. Yeah, I had a, a client, um, and you know, sometimes this is more in the senior generation, but I have, actually have some young folks as well that say, you know what, if I just really want to relax for a bit, I just start to look at some old photos. And you know, we've all got phones that go back you know, at least a number of years now. Yeah. And you know, even just scrolling through some of your old photos, where were you when you were doing this and that, so on and so forth, can put you back into a different space of mind. 
I love the idea of having lots of plants around as well. I'm a, a great lover of that. Mm-hmm. I think they're just generally good for you to be around. Yeah, yeah. I've got a few on my office. And I try to keep them alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Generally brings me joy in the morning. Greet the plants and you know say yeah. goodnight to them and so on and so exactly. forth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I love the fact that you've included meditation, uh, which we sort of talked about a little bit already. Um, start small for sure. Yeah. A small amount of time because it can be overwhelming. People go, Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine doing that. Oh yeah, and, and you know I've had some folks and I'm, I'm one of them who say, you know, I just can't meditate because as soon as I try to let the mind go blank, I can maybe get 10 seconds and then the mind just has gone off again and again. And I've had people say, well, that's the point. Yeah. The point is just to learn that about yourself. You know, maybe now you're 10 seconds, but a week you'll be 12 seconds exactly. or something like that. But just actually being mindful of that, that your mind mm-hmm. is wandering and going 100 miles an hour all the time, um, you know, that can make a difference. And what I really love is one of my clients, and I put this down as a quote, is she said, you know, when negative thoughts arise, uh, acknowledge them and let them go. And let them go. Right? That's it's, it, the key. it's okay to feel negative thoughts. We're all human. We all have different things that we'd never say out loud or want to write down, but acknowledge it. Let it go. Otherwise, don't give it the power over yourself. Exactly. And I think by acknowledging it, there's something that sort of depowers them. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I don't know why that works so well, but it does. Yeah, as soon as you give something a name, it's, it's in some ways you own it, right? Yeah. yeah. I want to skip down to, yeah. um, you know, what what we eat. Again, like I do mm-hmm. this other health show, and we talk a lot about that. And caffeine, uh, I mean, sometimes folks have no idea the impact that caffeine has on their body. Yeah, the most widely used psychoactive drug in the world, right? And you're probably more of an expert than, than me, Elaine, but <laughs> I can tell you I've gave, given up alcohol and I've given up caffeine in the oh, last three well. or four years, and caffeine was way more difficult. Ah. I had a lot more headaches, a lot more, you know, oh my God, I need the coffee in the morning. Right. Um, and even now I'm sitting here with a decaf. I still love the taste, but I've been able to wean the, the caffeine oh, away. See, I didn't know it was decaf. I thought you were drinking coffee just like me. <laughs> no, no, it's been, it's been a few years now. Oh, that's impressive. What else? But yeah, trying to, you know, minimize the caffeine stimulants. I'm trying to cook a meal, something that's wholesome, using, you know, fresh produce. We got just so many great options in BC. It's true. I think maybe the last one, Elaine, is again, really speaking towards our, what we're so fortunate on BC here is the idea of getting outside and going for a hike. Now, a hike doesn't have to be you're going up the grouse grind in 48 minutes flat and you're pushing everybody out of the way. There's some lovely hikes that are around for all different skill levels. Um, you know, ones that I've been, been mentioned of are Quarry Rock, Lighthouse Park, or White Cliff Lake. Those are yeah. all pretty local to Vancouver area. Or something if you want to drive a little bit or a bit more advanced. Um, Joffrey Lake is all over social media these days. Everyone's going there to take pictures and, you know, be careful about crowds. But there are so many different options, you know, local to Vancouver, local to Victoria, or really anywhere in the province. Go out, clear your head, enjoy the nature. Yeah, I think that's really important. I just want to throw in the list for Lower Mainland is Pacific Spirit Park. If you Mm -hmm. haven't spent any time in that, it's so enormous. Very easy to get lost in the trees and the forest and, and the oxygen's really good for you as well. Listen, if you like these ideas, I don't know how much of this you have on the website, <laughs> but if it's because of uh, money issues that you're really needing to take a break from, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. There's just tons of good information for you, lots of great questions. Give them a call as well, nice and easy to do, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us, Fred Snyder. I mean, we know Fred. We've known Fred for a long time, Blair. One of our favorite guests. I know. I don't (laughs) even want to do the bio on him because he's like one of your biggest mentors. I'm an ancient financial advisor. (laughs) You are. You've been in the business for over 50 years. Uh, Mackie Research is the name of the company, Yeah, we've been around since 1921. Okay. Wow. In the financial investment business. So we're so happy that you could be here with us. Yeah, and today's segment, Fred, so I've got a really broad title here, and I really wanted to give you a chance to connect with our listeners and let the listeners know, essentially, what can a financial planner do for them? Why should somebody reach out? You know, first off, what is a financial planner? Well, a financial planner is a person that sits down with a client and builds a bridge between where they're at right now and where they want to go. Hmm. The bridge is really a financial plan. Right. A financial planner is able to craft a written financial plan, which defines exactly what a person has to do to achieve their particular financial goals, whatever they may be. Hmm. And there's 13 major reasons why people fail financially that I've been able to define. Wow. And uh, amongst them is lack of knowledge, limited vision, entrenched habits. And the other ones are subsets of the first three. Mm-hmm. So I've built it up to 13. I could name you 101 different reasons. <laughs> You've probably seen them all, Let's right? take 13. Yeah. And, I, and I have seen them all. But basically, uh, lately on my shows, we've been dealing with the issue of the fact that people fail to prepare for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. That's one of the 13. Right. And secondly, they try to do it themselves. Right. And I've had a recent case where a lady called me, and she's blind, she can't see, and her her husband is a do-it-yourself investor. And he's he's got all of his money with Mm iTrade. He's a day trader. Okay, so he picks the stocks he's going to buy and sell. He, he executes buy, the orders. He does the whole deal himself. the market, all yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's fine. Some people can do that. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He, he and she, the two of them, did not prepare for the unexpected because he's at work. He falls. He hits his head, scrambles oh, his brains, and now he's mentally incompetent. Wow. Fortunately, she has an enduring power of attorney, so she can manage his affairs, but it's going to be very difficult because she can't see. Mm. She needs a lot of help. So they never contemplated that yeah. scenario where you know suddenly he who had organized all yeah. the finances wouldn't be around suddenly. Well, you have a book, When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Yeah. I think that, that summarizes that whole scenario very well. That's it. The events of life, the things that just happen to all of us and yeah. have a really big financial impact. So a financial planner can help you prepare for the unexpected. Now, I liked what you said first, Fred, where you said, you know, um, a financial planner helps you build a bridge. Yeah. So there's a lot of interaction with the client when you work with a financial planner. Is that right? They come in, you sit it's down, called, and blue it's, sky thinking? Like, it's called the discovery process. Mm-hmm. Financial advisors are mandated and regulated these days, and they're actually mandated to sit down and find out everything there is to find out about their potential clients. Makes it's sense. It's called know your client. Right. So you sit down and you find out how much money they have in cash and how much money they have in investments and how much of their money is registered and what is their net worth and do you count the house or not the house? Is there a mortgage? Are they massively in debt? Mm -hmm. Do they have a surplus at the end of every month or do they have a deficit at the end of every month? So it's pretty comprehensive. Do they have a budget? It's very comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that sounds great, Fred. Mm -hmm. But how do I choose you? 
to look after that for me. I get that what, what you then do for me, but what are the kinds of things that I should look for as a consumer before I engage you to help me figure this all out? Well, I'm looking for a job. Okay, so yeah. so when I sit down with a potential client, I hope I'm hoping that client is going to hire me. Right. So that's like a job interview. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, well, look, how do you look after your clients? How many clients do you have right now? How much money do you look after? So ask the how advisor long do your those clients questions. Stay with you. Mm. Give me some references. All right. Okay. All that. It's just like a job interview. Tell me about your track record. See, and I think those are really good points because I'm one of those people who always uh, hires other people or engages other people based on who they are and kind of the relationship stuff, the touchy-feely stuff, how I feel about them. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's not the best criteria to use to find a, a good financial planner. Hard questions. How much money do you look after? How long have you been in the business? How many clients have you got? Yeah. And I like that approach, Fred, of saying, you know, it's, it's a job interview for the advisor, not for the client, because I think the client can sometimes feel like, you know, well, I hope they take me on, exactly. right? You know, I hope I'm acceptable to them. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. But from your point of view, Fred, you know, <clears throat> what, what's a good client coming to you? Do they need to have, you know, everything in order or do you want to take somebody early on or whatever stage in life and help them get the structure wherever they're at, you know? Well, they're all over the place. You know, you look at a client, some of them have a low net worth. Some of them have a high net worth. They all have some kind of a financial problem. Even the high net worth people, they have a tax problem. They pay too much tax, as an example. They have their investments with five or six different financial advisors where the advice they get is conflicted. Okay. Okay. Maybe paying the, high costs, too, if a bunch of advisors. High costs, duplication. All, on, all these are issues. You know, you, you need to be able to take an investment portfolio, put it on the table, Put your finger on one of the investments and say to your advisor, why did you pick that? Mm-hmm. And hope the advisor gives you a really good answer. Because if they don't, you, you need to worry. Interesting. So that's a good test for our what listeners. Is, Go see your advisor and ask them about one of your investments. Why that specific what is investment the selection for me? process? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there are, well, I'm going to ask you, how many investment funds do you think there are in Canada? Oh, there must be thousands. Yeah, I would, think. I would, there, I would say so hundreds, many. but probably thousands. And do you know, Fred, there, I there are 20,000 20, mutual funds oh, in Canada. Lord. Really? That's what there is to pick from. Wow. wow. And I have, I, I have a method and a way yeah. that I can pick the best performing of the whole bunch over the last five years in real time. Mm-hmm. Are you going to la- share that with us? Or you- yeah, well, the last time I looked, I don't mind saying. I'll give them a free plug. It's Toronto Dominion Bank... Uh, uh, the technology fund. Mm-hmm. And reasonable costs on that, too, because I know there's now some new disclosures. We're seeing some funds seem to be the really high The rate of return cost. on that fund, net of fees and everything else, is 24% compounded annually. Wow. Oh, can't argue with that, can That's you? pretty good. <laughs> but you wouldn't bet the farm on just right. one fund. You've right. got to diversify. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I select securities in different areas so that they're not do. Then I say I want the top-performing Canadian equity fund. I want the I want the top performing bond fund, that kind of thing. I want the top performing dividend, preferred dividend fund, as an example. And all the funds in the portfolio are top performers over the last five years. If they don't have five years of history, I don't select them. Mm-hmm. They got to have at least a five year track record. Right. And if the five year track record, one year is really good and the rest of the years are lousy, I don't select it either. 
okay? It's got to have a consistent performance record, and it's got to fit together. There's a lot of judgment and analysis of the client's needs and then looking at the products and judging what you think fits best. That's why we call our, our firm Mackey Research. Right. The research is the analysis. Hmm. So, so I use Morningstar Advisor Workstation, and there are very few advisors that I know that even use that soft software, and they oh, should. Oh, really? So that's another question to ask if you're with an advisor. Yeah. Are you using Morningstar or something comparable mm-hmm. to get that type of insight, right? Does, it, does the advisor have designation CFP, RFP, CIM? Now, let's define each of those. I know CFP, Certified Financial Planner, is that Th- right? That's correct. Okay. That's a common one, right? Th- th- that's, that's like a chartered accountant, a CA. Yeah. Okay. These are all evidence that this particular advisor is serious about the financial planning business. Mm-hmm. If they don't have any initials after their name, it's, that makes a statement. Right. So you mentioned CFP. Did you say CIM is another? Yeah, that's Chartered yeah. Investment Manager. Right. So look These for These are difficult yeah. courses to pass. They take a lot of effort. Right. Okay. But they say something about the person that has those designations. The CLU on the life insurance side, chartered life underwriter, mm-hmm. okay? Every single portfolio manager of all the 20-some thousand mutual funds, or 200,000 mutual funds that are out there, every one of those guys is a CFA, chartered financial right. analyst. Every single one of them. And that's quite a tough one to get to. I know it's I have some friends who've done that. Yeah. Very hard to get. Yeah. <clears throat> Fred, have you got a magic uh, number in your head or based on all your years, decades of, of doing this work, when you think someone by this specific age or situation should absolutely be on stream to have a financial advisor to be able to, I don't know, maneuver the next 30 years? I think that everybody needs a financial coach. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you can do, even if you're smart enough to do it, is try to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. A dentist doesn't work on his own teeth. Right. <laughs> a doctor doesn't work on himself either. Mm-hmm. Okay? And just even have another set of eyes yeah, along another with yours. Yeah, another set of eyes. Right? Yeah. A financial coach. Somebody that you can sit down with and run the numbers. Like, let's suppose that somebody is 40 years of age and they want to retire at age 65. Okay, let's have a conversation about that person. How that conversation would go, you're 40. Now you want to retire at 65, that's 25 years from now, so you got 25 years between now and retirement. How much money are you going to need when you retire? Mm-hmm. What's your well, lifestyle? that depends yeah. on what your income mm-hmm. is going to, or what your expenses are going to be the day that you retire, inflation adjusted. So let's figure that out. Let's, 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 let's do a budget. Let's pretend that you're 65 today. What would your budget look like? How much do you spend for the roof over your head? How much do you spend on groceries? How, what's your transportation costs? What about gifts? What about charity? What about homeowner's insurance? What about property taxes? Mm-hmm. All the expenses, all the things that you spend money on. And that's going to come out to four or five, maybe $6,000 a month, something like that. How much capital do you need the day you retire? If you inflation adjust those numbers at 3% for the next 25 years, how much capital are you going to need to generate that income stream. That 40-year-old person probably needed to start earlier. And to make sure that that income stream lasts as long as that person lives. If they're 65, they're probably going to live to 90. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a fact that the first year I was in this business, 
That's the year they launched the Canada Pension Plan. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the Canada Pension Plan was based on life expectancy of a Canadian male. And in 1964, that's the first year I was in this business, a Canadian male who was 65 would live to age 70, only five years. Oh, oh my God. Wow. How times have changed. It's now 84. Yeah, and going up. So the Canada Pension Plan has to be designed to generate income that's going to last between age 65 and age 84, not age 65 to age 70, like mm -hmm. five years. Interesting. Lots to think about. Um, I want to just wrap up here. Uh, we've been talking with Fred Schneider from Mackey Research, over 50 years in the financial investment business. You're pr probably pretty easy to get a hold of. Hey, Fred, if I go to Mackey Research I got and Google an easy, it. I got a real easy cell number to remember. It's called, it's 644-PLAN. Oh, Perfect. 6447526 if you want the numbers. Nice. Yeah. But it's 644 plan. Awesome. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us is Mark Fidget, Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience in the mortgage business. He's a member of Verico Mortgage Network and a driver behind, here's the website, www.advancedequity.ca. Oh, we're so happy to have you again, Mark. Thank you. I like this topic for this segment. It's all about how a second mortgage can help you sleep better at night. And I'm really interested in hearing <laughs> what you have to say about this. Yeah, and, and Mark, I invited you to come on because actually I got a text from you one day with a really short video, and that was the headline on it was, you know, how a second mortgage can help you sleep better at night. And it got, got me enough to, to click through. And as I thought through it, I thought, you know, this is something that's relevant for some of my clients who might come in and they've got some equity, but they've also got a bunch of debt that they're paying a bunch of rates on. So I was really impressed with this this strategies that you had there. So let's talk about that today. we got a few minutes. Let's talk about strategies people can go through and how a second mortgage can help you sleep better at night. So just to, just to kick off, so if someone comes to you and they've got debt outside of their mortgage and they're wondering what their options are, how do you start to help them? Yeah, so great question, Blair. And, and we take them through a process of questions. And the, the first question obviously is, or the first thing they can do is keep doing what they're doing. And, and you've probably heard uh, the saying that if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you've been getting. Mm -hmm. And typically when someone's in a situation like that, they're maxed out on their credit cards. So one of the things they don't realize that even, and I'm saying even if they make their minimum monthly payment every single month on time, mm -hmm. no late payments, their credit is declining. And this has to do with credit utilization. And you know this just as well as I do, that if you're using a lot of your credit, and even if you're making your minimum payments, your credit score is in jeopardy of dropping. So if your credit limit is, you know, say $1,000 to pick a number, what's the right percentage to keep it at before your credit score starts to drop? So, so this is a, you know, you have to realize this is a computer-generated mm -hmm. program that, you know, does this yep. scoring system. But when, they, when you talk about credit utilization, the thought is 30% mm. of your maximum credit, you should stay, you know, so if it's a thousand bucks, that's $300. Now, wow. most don't do that. I mean, yeah. obviously some people pay off their credit cards, but most think, you know, if I've got 500 bucks on there, it's not a big deal. And then there's the ones that are maxed out. And then not to mention the ones that are going over their credit or missing payments. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, credit utilization is a big factor there. So even making your payments, you could still be doing some damage to your credit ratings. That's one consideration. Correct. And then the other one is, uh, and I'm sure you've probably seen these uh, debt reduction calculators where if you're making even that minimum payment, it's going to take you, you know, you're going to be in retirement and you're still carrying that debt with you because it takes forever. Scary scary numbers. 20% interest rates are really scary. Even a few thousand dollars can last for 10 years, you know? For sure. And then, of course... If someone isn't making the minimum payments and you're now getting the collection calls, it's super stressful. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's family's uh, jeopardy. Uh, you know, works has a negative effect on the relationship. So obviously, we go through that, and, and that's something that you can keep doing. Mm-hmm. So don't do anything; just keep doing what you're doing. And I see this example again and again, Mark. Usually with young families, sometimes there's a couple of kids, and they you know they've really struggled to get into the housing market, and you know saved and scrimped for what they could, and now they've just had a tough time with costs, and a lot has went on to credit. So I for think sure. yeah, there's a lot of people in this situation. So option one is just do nothing, continue doing what you're doing, you'll get the same result. Other options. Option number two, obviously, is sell your property. Now you know we we take someone through the you know the trials and tribulations of that. I mean, most people don't want to move because it's emotional emotional and a lot of them have families. And then they're, what do you, you know, where can you move to? What's the rent going to be like? So typically they don't want to do that, but we take them through, listen, you're going to eliminate all your debt. There's going to be a cash out, Um, you know, it may work for you, but typically most people don't want to move. It's just too too stressful, too much of an upheaval. Kids got to, you know, it's just too much. Yeah. I hear people saying, where are we going to rent for what we're paying in mortgage? And then also this gets us out of the market. What if the house keeps going up? We'll feel so you know, silly having sold too early. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, it, for some, it may be the best because I, I, we right. don't want to bandage you into a situation where it's just going to fall apart. So That's right. it's definitely something and a conversation we go through. Mm-hmm. And, and, and lastly is the second mortgage. And when I say lastly, we want to bring that last because we want to give it, make sure everybody has the right uh, information in front of them. But this is usually one of the best. So we're giving them a second mortgage on their property it's in a mortgage that doesn't report on the credit bureau. So ju- just so we're clear, it's going to erase all your debt that's on the credit bureau now, which is causing a negative effect. Mm-hmm. It's going to be replaced with a second mortgage, like I said, that's not reporting on the bureau. It's So, so a couple of things are going to happen. First thing is your debt's all erased. Your credit's going to start to heal and go up. Secondly, your cash flow is going to increase because the payment on your second mortgage is lower than your combined payments on all these high interest rate credit cards. And of course, then you're going to sleep better at night. And that's kind of a lane where mm-hmm. we go back to, how does this make you sleep better at night? Exactly. Well, yeah, definitely having more money in your pocket and more more security would, would help. And now, Mark, for some of our listeners who maybe haven't had a mortgage before or a second mortgage, let's just define the term. So what is a second mortgage? So it, it's it, when we say second, it's just second position. So when you get a first mortgage, most have gone through, gone down to their lawyer, it's registered on title, it's in first position. That means it's it's the first charge on title. Mm-hmm. This is exactly like the first mortgage, but it's the second charge on title. So it's behind your first mortgage holder. Okay. So I went to mortgage broker and I got a great deal on my first mortgage. And then the second mortgage is basically just another debt against the house, but it came on second in timeline. So it's called a second mortgage, a Correct. second priority. Correct. And, and, okay. and one of the advantages when we talked about increased cash flow is it's, it's amortized or it's interest only. So the payments are much lower than your, than your credit card debts. Hmm. And that might be kind of leading into my next question here, Mark, was, you know, basically what we're doing here in simple terms, we're swapping debt for debt, right? You're taking debt that you got in your credit cards, and you're now putting it against your house. How is that beneficial? How is that wise? Well, we talked about it 
increasing is allowing your credit bureau to heal, mm, heal your so credit score and, right? and, and a, a renewal time that might be important well correct? and this is the key we're trying mm. to we're trying to get an exit strategy we don't want you to stay in that second mortgage forever so your credit's going to heal your cash flow is going to increase and uh, hopefully within a year we, we provide you with a credit healing strategy that if you listen to what we do and you follow the you know the instructions, then we're hoping we can refinance you and make that first mortgage a little bit bigger, take out the second mortgage, and you're in a much better position a year from now. Okay. So in, in the case, because I'm assuming a second mortgage is going to be more expensive than your first mortgage, so they've got a higher risk, right? They're the second in line. Uh, but your point, Mark, is you're not going to pay this higher rate forever. You're going to pay it for a period of time until you can repair the credit. And then when you go to renew your mortgage, for example, you'll get a higher first mortgage at a lower rate. Is that making sense? Correct. Okay. And the second mortgage payment is still going to be less than what your credit card debt, for example, if that's what your big debt was, uh, than that rate. Right. And, and this which second, is significant. Exactly. And this second mortgage, you know, it could be credit card debt, it could be carpet, it could be rolling all your debt into one to free up your Got your, it. your credit and hmm. let your score heal. Even income taxes, things like that, the lenders Anything. don't care too Anything. much. Now, I guess income tax isn't hurting your credit, but so the stuff on your credit is what you'd want to prioritize. But to your point, it could be any any dollars that are outstanding against you. Right. And, you know, CRA could be pushing for the sale of your house, so you might want to pay that off. Right? That's so, true, yeah. yeah. So is there a path? Can you talk about the path that you take then at that point? Uh, What the first thing you said you do is provide the second mortgage. And then what are the things that happen after that? Obviously, your debt's been erased. We've paid off your credit card. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, how you deal with debt is very important. If you're just going to go back there and charge all your credit cards Mm -hmm. back up or go out and get another car lease, then you know what? It's all for naught and you're just whittling away your equity in your home and it's never going to get any better and you're going to end up selling your house anyway. So you might as well go with option number two in the beginning if that's kind of where you're going to be. So it's Mm -hmm. really important that heal your credit, try to save some money. Uh, you know, your employment's important, so you got to make sure you, you know, that you're not coming to me a year from now and saying, listen, I quit my job or something like that. So it's, you know, it's kind of... Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. yeah I could... <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, these these Could are big happen. big questions, big decisions. This is a big strategy, Mark, that I know some young families I've been sitting across the table from lately that this is perhaps something they should investigate. Um, you know, I wonder, Mark, is in our last minute here, can you talk about the whole idea of, of what you do as, as a mortgage broker? Because I know we've had you on the show before and we've talked about mortgage broker and what they can do for you, but this is a really important type of a decision for a person. So how do you help them go through something like this? Well, absolutely, Blair. And whether it's a second mortgage or refinancing or buying your home, Anything to do with this type of mortgage transaction is typically the biggest investment decision a person will ever make. So imagine knowing you have a skilled, experienced, licensed professional on your side every step of the way to help you through the maze of lender options, mortgage documentation, rules and regulations, who will ask you critical questions, listen vigilantly, vigilantly, and craft a strategic plan. And typically, it doesn't cost you a penny. Obviously, when we're talking about second mortgage uh, and things like that, there's mm-hmm. a, a fee involved. But mm-hmm. traditionally, with refinances and purchases, it doesn't. Mark Fidget is a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, www.advancedequity.ca. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.